Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill where we go back to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com where you can also subscribe or subscribe and find us on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, and what was the other one you, you saw? FM? A play, oh, was it a, a Player FM or something like Player that? Player FM. We showed up yeah. on Player FM, so there's another place you can find us, folks. Uh, sure. We were happily, pleasantly surprised to find that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, this week we have a Marvel book, don't we, Chris? We do, we do. This is a uh, special request from uh, Wayne Booth, and we are going to be discussing The New Warriors number 1, uh, cover date July 1990, written by Fabian Niciesa, penciled by Mark Bagley, inked by Al Williamson, colored by Mike Rockwitz, lettered by Michael Heisler, cover art by Bagley and uh, Jackson Geis, edited by Danny Fingeroth and Ed Eric Fine, Fiend, one of those. Yeah. <laughs> this is an idea conceived by Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. Uh, that was a uh, in an issue of Thor or a little little arc in Thor. Yep. Uh, cover price one dollar USD, one twenty five can. Yeah, cheap. Buy buy twelve for your family, as I'm sure. Some, exactly. I'm sure, some people did, as uh, you can see in the bins these days. These days, you can get four for it. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, we'll do our uh, usual creator bios here and, you know, a couple of interesting fellows to talk about. We got Fabian Nicieza first, born December 31st, 1961 in Buenos Aires, Argentina. He was the son of Omar and Irma Reguetti Nicieza. He has a brother named Mariano. He's a comic book writer and editor today, and you may have seen his name floating around. I have out there in the world. Moved to the United States when he was four, grew up in New Jersey. Fabian taught himself to read and write by reading comic books, which is not an uncommon story that you hear to be honest with you jim lee did the same thing you know yep uh attended rutgers university graduating 1983 with a degree in advertising and public relations Uh, while in college fabian interned for abc television he worked for berkeley publishing group until 1985 uh they were a mass market paperback publisher that at this time was owned by gp putnam's sons but these are the people that might have put out you know sci-fi Mass market that you would find at the uh, grocery airport, store. grocery store, stuff like that. Uh, in 1985, Nisieza joined the staff at Marvel Comics, initially as a manufacturing assistant, a production guy, uh, working with the you know nuts and bolts of printing, printing and preparing the comic for you know uh, the reader to see it. Uh, later, he moved to the promotions department as an advertising manager. During this time, he did begin taking freelance writing assignments, writing short stories for Marvel's promo magazine, Marvel Age. Nisieza's first published comic story was in Sci- was in Sci Force number nine, covered in July 1987, and that was a uh, title in Marvel's short-lived New Universe imprint. Which mm-hmm. boy, we're going to be talking about that New Universe someday, Chris. I'm telling you. Oh that. yeah. Uh, Fabian would stay on Sci Force from number 16 until number 32. That was February 88 to June 89, and this led to some fill-in work on such titles as Classic X Men, for which he provided backup stories. And in the Marvel Annual's 1989 summer crossover, Atlantis Attacks. Uh, after Tom DeFalco, he was then Marvel's editor-in-chief, created the superhero team of the New Warriors. He gave the titular series to Nicieza. And here we are today, folks, about to read that very first issue. 
Indeed, but first, Mark Bagley, born August 7th, 1957 in Frankfurt, Germany. We've got an international team here. Yeah. Uh, he was born into a, a military family. He worked for the military while attending the Ringling College of Art and Design in Sarasota, Florida. Uh, while working a construction job, he suffered a severe injury to his leg uh, while using a handsaw that required 132 stitches. Jeez, that's just... Uh, that's not pleasant. Yikes. <laughs> now, he wound up uh, working for the defense contractor Lockheed Martin making uh, technical drawings. Marvel editor-in-chief Jim Shooter created a, he created a book. It's a, the Marvel Tryout book. This is 1983. It was uh, something that was sent out uh, to, you know, to bookstores in mm. uh, an attempt to attract new talent. Um, there were several exercises in this book. You'd have a... You know, a deconstructed comic story that could be completed and submitted. I think there were some, like, rough penciled pages that yep. you could ink, uh, all sorts of stuff. I mean, there was literally stuff like those old, like, uh, you know, comic ads. Draw me, you know? Can you draw yes. the pirate or whatever? They st I mean, stuff On similar. the matchbook, yeah. Some of it was similar to that even, you know, but whatever they, whatever they could get an idea of how well you could draw. Absolutely. Or, or your storytelling uh, prowess and yep. all that good stuff. Um, now, at the time, uh, Mark was uh, 27 years old, and he was living in Marietta, Georgia. Uh, at this point, he had uh, given up on his dream of working in comics. Um, he was even reluctant to enter the contest because the book was priced at $12.95. Yeah, that's, a, for, and that's not a little for 83. That, that would no. be like a 25 or more dollar you know, paperback. Easily. Today, which, Easily. by the way... Paperbacks do sell for that much, so it's not impossible, but <laughs> it's still it's a lot of money to lay out. Absolutely. Uh, he had a buddy named Cliff Biggers, who uh, was a comic writer and sometimes a journalist. Uh, he would uh, he would get the book from Mark as a gift. Uh, it was a good thing he did because he wound up winning first pro first place for penciling, and uh, I guess like thousands of people were doing this, and he yeah. uh, he finished uh, you know ahead of them all. Uh, after winning the contest, however, he didn't hear anything from Marvel for several months. Uh, they hadn't thought that through. They got the tryout part, but <laughs> yeah. not the hiring part. Of it's like here, here's your here's your ribbon. Uh, yeah, exactly. See you Good job. <laughs> they, don't even, they, don't even, they don't even reimburse you for the twelve ninety five. That's it. You don't. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no. He approached uh, Jim Shooter at a comic convention and uh, would be uh, assigned to a series of low-profile penciling jobs. Um, he did the six-issue Visionaries miniseries. Uh, this ran from November 1987 to September 1988. This was a uh, toy tie-in. It came out through Marvel's Star Comics imprint mm. that had stuff like, you know, droids and Ewoks and Heathcliff oh, and yeah. all, all like the kiddie books. All my Planet Terry. Yeah. yeah. Fraggle Rock uh, had a comic in there. I love yep. that stuff. Sure did. Uh, he also did uh, various titles in the New Universe line. He did uh, backup stories for Captain America. Uh, he also did uh, a uh, prestige format. Um, I think it was like four prestige format books. It was a follow-up to Strike Force Moritori called uh, Electric Undertow. He oh, wow. did the art for those. Um, he would also do the first series of Marvel Universe trading cards in 1990. Also in 1990, Mark was assigned to the New Warriors comic, and he will be uh, he will be the Head penciling uh, guru of the issue we're going to discuss today. Yeah, and I mean, just to say broadly, he's a very capable artist. I mean, if his pedigree to this point doesn't tell you that he's got chops, when we talk about him more later, you'll see he's done a lot of great work. Kind of in the vein to me of John Buscema, you think? But uh, I, I could see that, yeah. But yeah, just, a, just a very good literalist. Very skilled, very fast. 
Yeah, he, he, he gets it, he gets it out quickly. That's uh, almost more important than being skilled in the comic. <laughs> Sometimes. Now, uh, just to say the issues that the, that this team came from, this isn't their very first appearance. The, their, the New Warriors first appeared in issues 411 or 412 of The Mighty Thor, November, December 1989, and those are written and drawn by uh, DeFalco and Ron Friends, and so that's why they get the, uh, creditor, the creator credit for making the team. But now we'll jump... Right into the New Warriors number one, titled the From the Ground Up. Uh, the cover has the members of the New Warriors bursting forth from a scattered pile of old team-oriented Marvel comic books, including the Avengers, the X-Men, the Fantastic Four. Uh, you see a couple of the West Coast Avengers that are littered around there. Mm-hmm. And the cover, you notice this, Chris, the coloring of the comics. Are you reading a color version of this book this time? Yes, yes. <laughs> They're all red. Again, they another red. almost all red Marvel comic. I think, I think we're seeing a, a theme here. Marvel comics have red covers. That's that's the mm-hmm. uh, the rule, I guess, if you want to have a, <laughs> you want to get them. Just like the last few that we've read. Uh, cover has bursts on it reading, Heroes for the 90s. And yes. Fantastic. First issue, which... Would have been the most important burst to have at this time. We'll talk about why that was later on. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, Chris, our, the heroes are labeled right there on the front cover. So yep. I see no reason not to introduce the team to everyone right now. We've got Marvel Perfect. Boy. That was a uh, real name, Vance Astrovic, created by Jerry Conway and Don Heck. First appeared in Giant Size Defenders number 5 in July 1975. As a teenager in Saugerties, New York, he's visited by a future version of himself that's a member of the original Gardens of the Galaxy. This meeting triggers his telekinetic powers earlier than expected, and so we have Marvel Boy. Incidentally, the original Guardians was the ones that appeared in Marvel Superheroes number 18, January 69, created by Arnold Drake and Gene Cullen. This is not the raccoon, rocket raccoon version. I think when people hear about Guardians these days, they don't think about this, uh, the four... Yeah, is there is there any talking tree in it? I don't think there's a talking tree in this one. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, <laughs> skip right by it. This, uh, the next character we got is Firestar, Angelica Angel Jones, created by Chris Claremont and John Romita Jr. Her first appearance in comics was Uncanny X-Men number one hundred ninety-three, uh, May nineteen eighty-five. She was originally created as being one of Spider-Man's amazing friends for the uh, for the cartoon show. Hmm. Um, when her mutant fire-making powers manifest. With the onset of puberty, she was intercepted and trained by not Professor Xavier, but Emma Frost for the Hellfire Club. She was uh, going to be one of the Hellions. Mm-hmm. Um, later, she would turn on her benefactors and become a pretty cranky superhero. <laughs> yeah, she kind of has a bit of a chip on her shoulder, but that's right. it. We yeah. need that. You need that on a team. Uh, <laughs> then we have Namorita. That's Namorita Nita Prentice, created by Bill Everett. Uh, first appearance who actually created Namor, which I guess is why. Yeah. Uh, first appearance in Submariner number 50, June 72. Namor's cousin at one time, Queen of Lemuria, Namorita, went through her teen years raised by a family on dry land and now attends Empire State University. She has the same basic power set as Namor, although I bet, as is the usual case with female heroes, hers are like slightly less, right? They'd be like one notch down. <laughs> same yes. thing. So you could still, could still pick up a battleship. But with a little bit more effort, that's all. You know what I mean? She's diet Namor. <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> she'll, she'll break a little sweat as she, you know, throws tanks around. That's that's yes. the difference. Now we have a 
Kid Nova. Yeah. This is uh, the uh, the first Nova here. This is Richard Ryder, created by Marv Wolfman and John Buscema. First appeared in Nova Number 1, September 1976. Uh, when the last surviving member of the planet Xandar's elite Nova Corps is dying, he selects New York High School student Richard Ryder to replace him. He's got a bunch of basic superhero abilities drawn from the Nova Force. Uh, though as his comic book begins, he is depowered and living on Earth as a regular dude. Yep. And uh, that's going to come right in the very beginning. But we got to talk mm-hmm. about Speedball. Robert Robbie Baldwin, created by Tom DeFalco and Steve Ditko, first appeared in the Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 22 from January 1988. After being imbued with power from another dimension at Hammond Research Laboratories in Springdale, uh, the Springdale, Connecticut teen Robbie fights crime locally with his power to absorb and reflect kinetic, kinetic energy. He's essentially a human pinball, if, that, if you can picture that. He can bounce around. He can't really be touched. It's kind of hard to explain, Is really. It? And he was originally uh, conceived to be part of the new universe. But, oh, uh, really? That makes sense, yeah, actually. Good but uh, I guess uh, the new universe was uh, kind of petering out at that point. So and they, they, decided, decided, they decided to save this guy. <laughs> Sure, sure. You know, you you name, you name a guy Speedball. You need him on a, in the mainstream universe. Yeah, uh, right. This issue yeah. also introduces, uh, or not so much introduces, no. insofar as his first appearance. But uh, this is the guy that we know the least about. This is Night Thrasher, uh, Dwayne Michael Taylor, who's created by DeFalco and Friends in that first uh, first appearance in Thor number four eleven, uh, December of eighty nine. Mm. Uh, at the time of this issue's publication, we do not know a whole lot about him. So we're going to jump on in. Yeah, we'll learn about him as we go. Now, the opening splash page has Night Thrasher holding Richard Ryder by the neck with his left arm, dangling him off a rooftop of a tall building. And he has a black armored bodysuit with a red sultan's belt and a red and black motorcycle helmet. This is the way Night Thrasher looks, <laughs> uh, which I guess was okay in, in uh, 1990. I don't know. Sure. Uh, there's a knife poking out from behind his right fist, indicating that he's equipped. Uh, you know, like this guy has weapons on him, just so you're aware. <laughs> and uh, it's nighttime in Queens, New York. Night Thrasher goes, Answer the question, aren't you Richard Ryder? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Night Thrasher opens his left hand and lets Richard Ryder drop. Ryder screams on the way down, but then his eyes blaze red with a tick sound. He's able to swoop up and fly just before hitting the pavement. Kid Nova says, You knew I used to be Nova, but how'd you know I I still had my powers in me? I didn't. Ryder's pretty angry at first, but I think he realizes that that was a pretty cool cool thing to say, Night Thrasher, so yeah. that's fine. And plus, Thrasher <laughs> calms him down with a shattering judo toss. Uh, Night Thrasher explains he only gave Richard back the thing he wanted most. And now he needs a favor. So, so uh, the next morning in Manhattan, Marvel Boy in his regal blue and white bodysuit with cape is floating up to the Avengers mansion. He's, uh, he's looking to join the team. Uh, Marvel Boy is attacked by the mansion's defenses, which are, of course, just a bunch of robotic uh, Doc Ock arms <laughs> coursing from the ground to restrain him. Yeah, that's, that's the best they can come up with. Marvel sure. Boy says, Security systems? All right! Once the Avengers see my telekinetic powers in action, they'll beg me to join them. 
And in the very next panel, he is totally restrained. Okay, let me go. <laughs> the Avenger security does a retinal scan and recognizes him as uh, the, his, his future self, Vance Astro of the Guardians of the Galaxy. How, how does that work? Uh, Recognize uh, someone as their future self? Okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Captain America steps outside to address the young captive, and he says, A little too young to be a thousand years old, aren't you, son? <laughs> Captain America! Now, they clear up this business of Marvel Boy being the presently young version of the future self that Cap knows. <laughs> Actually, by this time, the Guardians and the present-day Marvel Universe had tra- time-traveled back and forth to hang out with each other many times. Yeah. Um, now, the first time this would happen was in a, a Defenders number 26, uh, cover date August 1975, by Steve Gerber and Sal Buscema. Uh, plus, uh, I guess uh, Ben Grimm, the thing, vouched for him. Maybe? Yeah, apparently they had sure. done some ish comic uh, right before then. Although curiously, there was no caption to help us find out. I guess I could have really dug around to find out. But I just find it funny. Like that's there's no there's no there's not a lot of explanation except like no. oh Cap knows this only the future version of this guy for some reason <laughs> only in comics. So anyway, uh, Marvel Boy will not be admitted into the Avengers. If only he waited a couple of years. I mean, that's when everyone's an Avenger. Mm-hmm. Uh, Captain America says, "Well, you're a little, you're you're a little too young still, and we don't have the training facilities needed to teach you. Why don't you try again in a few years, Vance?" Oh yes, sir. And he does. Yeah. But we'll get there. <laughs> now, at this point, you know, didn't he didn't he pick you know Bucky, yeah. who was uh, just like a like a Boy Scout to be uh, to actually battle on the front lines of World War II with him? But he was like an eleven year old kid. You know what I mean? Like at, right? least, at least Marvel Boy looks to be about nineteen twenty. You know, something like that. You know, like uh... and he was drafted. <laughs> it's like yeah. oh, you found out my secret. Get ready to die. Exactly. Oh, I <laughs> ought to ten year hide, but uh, you got me dead to rights. Now you're my sidekick. Uh, (laughs) Hope you don't mind fighting Nazis. They're only the big worst killers in history. Anyway. Sure. Anyway, Marvel Boy feels pretty embarrassed by the whole ordeal and he kind of levitates away. And while cruising through the air he passes by Night Thrasher and Kid Nova hanging out on a rooftop. Night Thrasher goes, Marvel Boy? Who? The name's Night Thrasher. This is Nova. You want to join a group, do you? And Kid Nova's now dressed in his yellow and red uniform with the garbage pail helmet that if you know it, you know what I'm talking about. It's an ugly color scheme. <laughs> it is. Uh, now, that afternoon in Queens... Caption tells us that a quiet neighborhood has been turned upside down by a modern-day nightmare, ground soil contamination. Three children have developed cancer over the past year, another five. Leukemia. The school prick playground has been closed down and the experts have finally been called in. The New York Department of Environmental Protection has hired Genetech, a new company whose specialty is superhuman genetic research, and a class from Empire State University's Department of Environmental Science has come for a field assignment. I think that's the first time I ever saw it. I ever heard Genetech said out loud. I usually just thought Gene Tech. Gene Tech? I can... <laughs> but that sounds so dumb. Wow. Genetech sounds so much better. <laughs> uh, now, Namor Rita is a student in this class and asks what the impact of all this commotion has on the uh, surrounding community. Uh, the CEO of Genetech, Walter Rosen, pretty much blows her off. So. He's like, eh, don't worry about it. It's all right. <laughs> we, we then shift scenes to Midtown Manhattan, and we're in uh, Night Thrasher's stately penthouse apartment that also has a command console. <laughs> <laughs> he, he explains that he lives with two legal guardians. 
Do your guardians know about all this equipment? Do they know about your crime fighting? They encourage it. They have taught me all I know and given me all I need to wage my war. Just then, Night Thresher's guardians walk into the room. Uh, it's a huge, tough-looking bald fella in a vest named Cord, and a diminutive, much older Asian woman, complete with kimono and chopsticks in her hair because, you know, uh, and her name is Ty. Sure. Oh, God, how am I going to do this one? Uh, I'm going to leave this one up to you, Chris. <laughs> so Ty says, Yes, Cord, without organization, information, and determination, life becomes a series of uncertain steps towards an unknown goal. Kid Nova replies, Wonderful. Did Rosie Greer over here take Confucius to get fortune cookies, or does she always talk like that? Isn't he like a guest in their home? I know. Come on, dude. Like, you know what, what I mean? This is literally <laughs> the, fucking, the mom of the house. He's like... one. Uh, anyway, this is a good time for Night Thrasher to explain his origin. Yes, he says, uh, my parents were murdered when I was a boy. We went to see Zora. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to make all criminals pay for what they do. Yeah. So basically, you're Batman. You're, rich. you're a rich guy whose parents died in front of you, and now you're Batman. Sure. <laughs> he says, but I need help to do that. That's where you guys, and hopefully one other, come in. He's got a plan here. So Court sits nice. at that console, looks at the looks up the fifth member of the crew who's going to be Firestar, not that Firestar. No. He lends her, he finds her by searching records from the Hellfire Club's recruitment front, Massachusetts Academy, which I thought was a cool nod to her past. You know what I mean? Like if you knew, mm -hmm. then it was something. If you didn't, then it didn't really matter. Kid, no. Kid Nova presses Night Thrasher on how he figured out his identity, and Reed Richards, he says that Reed Richards did a complete scan on Richard Ryder when he got back to Earth, and he shared that information from S.H.I.E.L.D., and that's where Night Thrasher stole it from. He was like, I can't get, I could never break through Fantastic Four's uh, firewall, but <laughs> S.H.I.E.L.D., it was not a big problem, I was able to no. do that. Um, Night Thrasher further explains that he was able to know when Marvel Boy was at the Avengers Mansion because he pays the hot dog vendor outside 500 bucks a week to provide him with a list of people coming and going at the mansion. Jeez. <laughs> now, Avengers Mansion security can defeat a telekinetic superhero, but is powerless against a set of hot dog vending eyes. It's, it's like, what? Like, you think, they don't notice. It's like, huh. They have a lawn full of Dr. Octopus arms, but they got nothing to stop the uh, hot dog vendor from uh, talking to people. Uh, also, <laughs> and a guy in motorcycle gear comes by and hands him 500 bucks. Away. I know, really. Just, just, exactly. You know what I mean? A guy gives Just tell me who comes and goes. Out of this place. Oh, whatever you say, buddy. Five hundred bucks. I'll sell my own mother. I. Uh, it also occurs to me that if he's getting like a weekly list, then how would he know that Marvel Boy was coming down the walk? You know what I mean? How would that be? That's also true. But anyway, that's we're not gonna. Maybe it's a precognitive hot dog vendor. <laughs> maybe, maybe. That, that's the that's the whole thing. He was playing the algorithms. He knew that he knew that eventually Marvel Boy would fit in there somewhere. Anyway, we'll, we'll, don't, we'll, if, we won't worry about it. And if he's got access to all these files, why did he pick these dorks? I know. Well, that's the, <laughs> that's the broader question, uh, and you know, there's even going to be an extra person added into this team. But mm -hmm. we'll we'll uh, we'll talk about that when we get to it. Yes. So uh, now it's time to call the final member of Night Thrasher's crew. A phone rings in a two-story home in suburban West Morris, New Jersey. Fiery redhead Angelo picks up. Angelo Angelica Jones picks up. Sorry. Jello. <laughs> Angelica Jones, we know who you are. We know what you can do. 
So will the world, so will the world if you don't come to the penthouse of the Ambrose building on 57th and Lexington. 30 minutes. Starfire replies, Jello? Who, who is this? The phone hangs up with a click, and fire blasts out of the second floor window of Angelica's home. No, no, no! Uh, there is and was no Ambrose building in Manhattan, by the way, but in 1878, brothers William P. and Ambrose M. Parsons commissioned architect A.B. Ogden to design a string of six four-story houses stretching along Lexington Avenue on 64th Street. So, hmm. that's something for you. Sure, meanwhile. Apparently, I've been saying it. I've been saying Starfire and it's Firestar the whole time. I, I think yes, my, my brain must have, okay. must have just transposed it in my DC Comics brain. Sorry about that. Yes, another another fiery redhead. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, meanwhile, in Springdale, New York, uh, Robbie Baldwin is about to hop on a train with his mom to visit New York City. And he's being a real brat about it. I don't want to go. 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 His mom says, oh, calm down and get on the train. Robbie's mom has got it going on, by the way. This is not, mm-hmm. a, it's not an older lady, so I'm just telling no, you. No. Mom, I don't want to go to another art gallery opening. I mean, just shoot me in the head now, you know. Such dramatics have never worked on mothers. So it's like, no, never ever, in Have history. you ever gotten out of anything doing that kind of thing? No. No, it's like when I'd uh, when we'd be checking out at the at the grocery, I'd say, "Get me that Archie Double Digester. I'm gonna shoot myself in the head." And she'd be like, "Never got that book." She'd be like, "Help! Uh, you have a bullet? You sure you? What do you need?" <laughs> <laughs> How about these chuckles instead? Um, <laughs> back in Queens, a huge tank that looks like an ugly beetle is is threshing up the ground and spitting it into a clear container, sticking out of its butt or its abdomen. Maybe right, it's right. thorax. I don't yes. know. <laughs> Um, Walter Rosen explains that this machine to the uh, explains this machine to the class from Empire State, which includes Namorita. Yeah, he says that is Genetic Tech's newest little toy. It's an Aliac unit, an ambient ionic energy locator and collator, but we affectionately refer to it as Tough Tro, Trow, whatever. Trough. <laughs> Trough. It will pinpoint any and all forms of radioactive contamination in the soil isolating uh, only in the tainted terra firma containing it in the spectral analytical casing and running it through a series of multiband electromagnetic resonating transmissions. I wonder if those uh, if those reports were peer reviewed because <laughs> it's a good enough explanation sure, for us. Sure, I, I didn't understand it, but whatever. And it it does give us a uh, an a, what is it an ac- an anagram or what is it an acronym? An acronym, uh, yeah, ILAC. Iliac, yeah. Because that's that's one of Nicias's things. You get a lot of acronyms from him <laughs> in really? his future writing. This is even like a real word, Iliac. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I know. Just... Uh, no, something begins uh, congealing in the irradiated dirt being collected by Tough Trough, <laughs> and that turns out to be. Terax. Terax comes out and says, I am alive! Terax has returned! Now this is Terax the Tamer, who first appeared in Fantastic Four number 211 back in October 1979. Uh, he was uh, Galactus's new herald at that yeah. point. Uh, meanwhile, back at the Ambrose building, Night Thrasher, Kid Nova, and Marvel Boy are on the roof waiting for Firestar. Uh, she blasts a bolt through solid concrete, melting it. Firestar says, how did you find out about me? Marvel Boy responds, That's Firestar! To which Night Thrasher says, Calm down, we want you to join our group. Seemed like the quickest way to get you here. 
you could have tried asking. Yeah, right? Yeah, that's all. <laughs> you know? As a matter of fact, this was probably the most convoluted way. Since you had her phone number, you could have just, you know? <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's like, no, I'm going to threaten you. Like, you know, the, yeah. the call is coming from inside the house. I'm going to threaten you. <laughs> I got I to draw you out. Just say, ask her on the phone. Come on, dude. It's not a big deal. But, uh, you know, we, we, we know that social graces really ain't no. Night, Night Thresh's thing. No, he's concentrated more on the costume and less on the uh, personality. Yes. Uh, suddenly, everyone is alerted and shook around by an earthquake. Yeah, Night Thresher says, The chances of an earth tremor in this area? Nearly impossible. I guess tectonic geology must be one of his hobbies because he uh, minored yeah, in that. Yeah. He seems to know all about what what is possible and not possible. He he majored in costume design, minored in tectonic <laughs> geology. Go, obviously, clearly. <laughs> uh, at Night Thrasher's console, there's a police band alert. Priority six six six. Oh that, lord, that's a superhuman activity alert, says Marvel Boy. <laughs> six six six. Yeah, <laughs> I I, I could have sworn that meant something else. I mean, did they want to come up with another number? I don't. I mean, like, I, I understand it's you know it's it's a police department or a secular organization. They don't have to worry about necessarily the number of the beast. But come on, the connotations are right there. You know, jeez. You just don't know what you're summoning at that point. It's true. Uh, Night Thrasher goes. The bulletin says it's happening in Queens. It'll take too long to get the chopper going. You have a helicopter. Marvel Boy can't fly fast or far enough on his own. Nova, you carry him. Firestar, we apologize for our methods, but we need your help. Our methods? Can you carry me all the way to Queens? Gee, I'm not really sure. I guess we'll find out somewhere over the East River. I guess it didn't take much convincing for her to join up, huh? None at all. You know, matter of fact, <laughs> she went from being a tremendously pissed off to part of the team in, in yeah. one second. So there you go. Mm-hmm. She turned on a dime. <laughs> uh, now, in Queens, Re- uh, Terex is wrecking shop here. Uh, his power is to manipulate the earth, uh, creating crags and spikes. Yeah. And uh, Namorita is doing her best to fight him all by her lonesome. Yep, he, he's doing all right against it, though. He says, Who are you, Earth Pig, to confront me alone? Are you a suicidal fleshling? Is protecting this mudball planet so important to you? Yeah, she considers the question and has to admit, maybe not. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, she tries to hit him head on, but uh, Terax throws a column of dirt at her with a throom and slams her into a parked car with a kumpum. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of gross. Uh, Namorita is, uh, she's in a bad way. My victory over you will not be complete, Earth Pup, until I am complete. Upon plunging my fist into this maelstrom of metal, I will trigger my cosmic powers and recreate my acts of vengeance. That's the name of a crossover, kind of. That's true. <laughs> Terex holds a very cool and very front-heavy axe aloft. All the better with which to sever our relationship. Eh, Should have left it with axe of vengeance, right? Yeah, kind of kills a it. Good follow-up. That there, was buddy. dorky. Yeah. But, uh, now the nameless team formed by Night Thrasher shows up, and as we switch scenes, we want to watch the television action, the action on television in an electronic store. Uh, the television reporter says. Who are these brave new warriors who have burst onto the scene? Hey, they said it. Yeah. They said it. I think that's it. <laughs> uh, and I guess who's watching it there is Robbie Baldwin, a.k.a. Speedwell. He's out with his mom. Now he's getting 
a television that she actually promised in that other scene when they were uh, when she hauled them down to an art gallery opening. Mrs. Baldwin says, "Hmm, think I've got it narrowed down to three choices." Hey, mom, can I go down to Queens and fight a psycho supervillain with a bunch of pubescent superheroes? Of course, honey. Now this one is cable ready, you say? Adults just don't really pay attention, huh? No, just well, hey, kind of clueless. This is great. Is it Robbie's making parental neglect work for him? So that's uh, something <laughs> the kids can learn. They say this comics can't teach anything. Well, here you go. There you Make are. Sure you ask your parents something while they're totally distracted. <laughs> uh, Robbie needs to trigger his kinetic field, so he walks out of the store and stumbles over a bunch of boxes, and that's enough. He, trans- he transforms into Speedball, the Mass Marvel, and takes off. I like that little seed. It was just like. You know, how am mm-hmm. I going to do this? Boink. Okay. Boink. <laughs> now, back in Queens, Terax is clobbering Kid Nova. Night Thrasher uh, directs Firestar to, to attack Terax's axe with blasts. Say that five times fast. That, 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 that. <laughs> Very good, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Terax rages. The Namorita hits him with a right cross that sends him flying. Terax smashes into the ground, and Night Thrasher. Skateboards by, he thrashes. Oh, you heard that, right? Wow. That's where the thrasher comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, Night Thrasher tosses some smoke grenades at Terax while grabbing some wicked air. Everyone hit him now while he's blinded. Blinded? <laughs> Nessient, insignificant moat. I was able to see in the darkest reaches of space. How can mere smoke harm me? And Terax grabs the wild-eyed Night Thrasher by the face and chucks him pretty hard. Yeah. Allow me to show you the wonders of the universe I have sampled. This is a meteor! I, Terax will never, uh, he'll never be known for his fight banter, huh? No, I think, I think he, he watched too many uh, action movies in the 90s or something, you know? Yeah. I expect him more to be like, you know, hasta la vista. <laughs> uh, anyway, so before Night Thrasher dies from a collision, Marvel Boy uses his telekinesis to yoink him to safety. Thanks for the assist. Sure, but what do we do about Terex? Just then, Genetech CEO Walter Rosen, standing in the rubble, calls to them. Wait, listen to me. If my theories are correct, this creature can be stopped. Listen to me. I don't see that we have much choice, mister. Well, I mean, you could solicit the advice of someone you know instead of just some guy standing around in the rubble, maybe. That, that could help. That might work. I don't know, but uh, I guess they, <laughs> they, he decides he has no choice. Any uh, port in the storm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, everyone gets a good, judge, a good shot fighting Terax with incremental effect. They seem to not be doing too much, though. Marvel Boy notices that Speedball's kinetic spheres, these kind of weird things that are always hovering around him, they damage Terax's t- tough rock skin, so he telekinetically traps Speedball and his bubbles, allowing them to build up kinetic energy until they are released all at once on Terax with a thwafoom. That's sort of a mean trick to play on Speedball, huh? I mean, they just met each other. You know, didn't even yeah. know they don't even know each other. It's like, <laughs> let me trap you in a kinetic field. He could have killed the kid. He doesn't know. Maybe that was the point. Uh, now, the kinetic bubbles do chip away at Terax, causing him to scream in rage. I will kill you all! It was kind of the original goal, too, right? How is this different from, you know, two pages ago? 
Yeah, he was going to kill them anyway. Uh, Terax uses the ground soil to replenish his battered body. Uh, Kidnova and Namorita team up and take Terax high into the sky. He starts flipping out while they fly higher and higher. Nova and Nita chuck Terax upwards and he explodes with a tum tum. Yeah, Namorita goes, Suffering Shad, we just killed him. Kidnova says, He knew! That son of a bitch, he knew! <laughs> Oh, Thrasher, you let us kill him! <laughs> no, I didn't. You know, just like a, a, teenage, a moody teenager to shirk responsibility. Oh, of course, but Walter Rosen does explain, I did, sort of. The first time you youngsters lifted Terax off the ground, our sensors registered enormous stress to his system. Terax was a disembodied sentient energy form which required constant ground soil replenishment. Once removed from the ground, the ambient energy was unable to keep the amalgamated form stable. Oh, okay. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Namorita goes, So, it wasn't really alive at all? Uh, you could think of it that way. I guess whatever helps you sleep at night, right? Yeah, really. <laughs> Come on, you, you <laughs> kill the guy. That's all there is to it. Uh, some Avengers show up, and the day is saved. In fact, it's Captain America, Quasar, and She-Hulk. Captain America says, You seem to have helped with the situation here, kids, but the Avengers should take over now. And the Avengers stroll away, Walter Rosen running after them and offering his nuclear containment services. He has no no need for the new warriors anymore. Goodbye. Nah, who needs them? Speedball goes, sure, no problem. You can take care of all the hard stuff. You know, the press, the adulation, the glory, the drooling female fans. Namorator goes, kids? Marvel Boy says, oh, come on. Cap didn't mean anything by it. And Kid Nova replies, I think you worded your line wrong there, Marvel Boy. You should have said we didn't mean anything to Cap. Marvel Boy says, hey, he's Captain America. As much as he wiped your nose when you tried joining the Avengers this morning. Cap dumped on you? Me too. Now, a helpful caption tells us that it was in Captain America 353 from May 1989. Speedball says, hey, we could be like the Legion of Substitute Avengers. And the whole issue for me was worth it for just that one line. I really, That's I, the I high point, yeah. Up. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, Night Thrasher announces why they don't need the Avengers. Thanks to himself... Uh, uh, thinks to himself that he would have preferred four people. He didn't. He didn't plan on having Speedball, but whatever. I guess he'll take what he what he can get. Uh, yeah, and, and who, Night, won't, who won't leave? I guess exactly. He can't really get rid of him, <laughs> so he's kind of stuck. Uh, Night Thrasher says they can be a team. We can fight the kinds of crime they never touch. Does he mean like white collar crime? Is that the? That, that's the Maybe. one they never touch. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah. We can make a difference. We can help people. Are you with me? And everyone stacks hands, team style. Speedball, go- Speedball goes, that's the spirit, guys. Is it just me, or is it an incredibly dramatic and emotional turning point in our lives? Firestar, in- uh, Firestar, Firestar interjects, I really don't know about this. Namorita goes, buck up, Red. It'll be copacetic. That's kind of a weird thing to say, right? Well, a little bit. Is copacetic, is that the way to, to describe this venture, uh, anyway? I think Niciasa won a bet by, uh, by fitting that <laughs> yeah, word in there. I bet you can't use the word copacetic in a comic. <laughs> I'll uh, show you. <laughs> Marvel Boy says, what do we call ourselves? And Kid Nova replies, how about the imbeciles? Because I must be one to be doing this. 
Wonk, wonk. Speedball says, I heard a reporter call us something cool. How about the new Warriors? The logo trademark is pending, I'm sure. Indeed. Night Thrasher ends it with, That's it. End of discussion. And the beginning of a legend. Yep, but definitely not the end of the new Warriors. They were, after all, new. And I... Sorry. Perhaps their high point, though. This, you think this? I mean, to be honest, the the issue itself was not bad at all. I thought, you no, know, it was a good issue. Well drawn, a little little silliness, you know, a little convenient the way people joined up with uh, Night Thrasher upon, you know, very, anything. Very standard Marvel superheroics. It, it, it was, I mean, yeah, it was good enough though. At least, at least they didn't all join up and start fighting each other. It's like, it's like, the, yeah, as is the usual way heroes meet nowadays. But it was like, uh, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good issue, and there was. Mm-hmm. More to come. This actually had quite a quite a good run. This first uh, volume of New Warriors ran for seventy five issues and a handful of annuals, and concluded in September nineteen ninety six. Uh, the New Warriors teamed up with the X Force for a crossover called Child's Play. The group known as the Upstarts used the mutants as a game and would kill them for points. They were uh, in a youth movement and so wanted to kill the young fellas, the young game, as it were. Yes. Uh, book joined uh, I Spider Man's editorial fiefdom, which was DeFalco, I think, at the time, right? Uh, or uh, Budiansky. That's what it was, Budiansky. That's right. When we went through the clone thing, we heard plenty from him. Yes. Um, and had a bit of a role in Maximum Clonage. Ben Riley joined the New Warriors at this time. They meet the Guardians of the Galaxy, not the movie ones, but the ones we talked about uh, earlier as they hunt for Speedball. Uh, why anyone would want to find Speedball, we're not sure, but. They no. went to go find him. Also, there was a there was like a relationship between um, Firestar and Wonder Boy, right? Or something. Yes, uh, or, or uh, Justice and Firestar. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, they, uh, Nova. You mean? No. Uh, no. Nova and Namorita were together. Okay. That's. I. Uh, yeah. they, they were. They were love interests. I don't know. Like, I. I read through it, but boy, there was a lot to get through. But yeah, there, there was. Uh, there was intrigue. There was a lot of interpersonal, intercharacter stuff happening. It sounded like it was a pretty. Solid run, I thought. Yeah, there was a the, the volume ends with uh with Justice and Firestar announcing their engagement, but it's never to be. Mm, that's it. Uh, yeah, because they they will join the Avengers uh, during the uh, Busiek Perez run, oh, okay. and uh, and they uh, they kind of they kind of part ways. Uh, it, it it seems like it, it, nobody can decide on whether it was an amicable break or a. <laughs> <laughs> depends but, uh, on the writer, right? It does. It depends does. on the writer and that writer's past relationships, too, probably. We have to look at that. Very likely. Very likely. Uh, now, the uh, New Warrior story ain't done yet. They had a second volume. Uh, it went a mighty 11 issues, uh, including an issue number zero that came with an issue of Wizard Magazine. Uh, it ran from October 1999 to May 2000. Oh, that can't be right. Um <laughs> Jay Ferber wrote this uh, pretty uneventful series, which is perhaps best known for giving Nova the ugliest costume ever. Uh, it's even worse than the ones that he had in this first issue of uh, New Warriors here. Wow. Um, I, I remember one of the covers actually has, you know, like that the old, the, the new ugly costume in a garbage can, and Nova in his classic costume oh, flying man. away from it. Oh, no. Because it, it, uh, was, it was hated. It was bad, um, bad. All right. <laughs> now, during this run, Aegis and Bolt joined the team. Um, Bolt was a uh, mutant sidekick of a character called Maverick, who was part of the Wolverine. Uh, uh, Team X run, you know, uh, and they both had the legacy virus. Uh, that's Bolt and Maverick. They had the uh, the mutant legacy virus. Oh, 
That's something. I'll tell you though, this next volume sounds like something I don't want to read. Not at all. Uh, six issue mini went from August 2005 to February 2006. This was written by Zeb Wells, art by Scotty Young. And this was a reality show season whose fallout spins off into the events that launched Civil War, the less terrible one, not the recent not one. It's even worse. Yeah, this is way, yeah, way worse. Uh, the team engaged in a televised fight with several villains, including Nitro in Stanford, Connecticut. In the opening of Civil War, he goes boom, killing 612 people, which feeds into, obviously, the needs. For the superhuman surrounding, registration. Yeah, the, yeah, the registration. Now, uh, New Warriors Volume 4 was uh, 20 issues long, uh, ran from August 2007 to March 2009. Now, this volume mostly dealt with the fallout of House of M with the uh, No More Mutants mandate. Uh, several depowered mutants, including Jubilee, Chamber, yeah, a lot of the, it seems like a lot of the Generation X type kids and <laughs> the uh, like some Joe Casey stuff joined the team and they wore uh, costumes that gave them their power. Uh, we've got Blackwing, who was formerly Beak, part of the special class during Morrison's run. Okay. We have Decibel, who was former Chamber. Uh, Long Strike, former Tattoo. I think that was another uh, another special kid from uh, the the Morrison run. Uh, Phaser was former Radiant. Uh, Ripcord was was Stacy X, who was the uh, she was like the the she had like sexual powers. Okay. And, uh, yeah, like she would uh, <laughs> like she was a, they found her in a mutant brothel. Basically, this was during the Joe Casey run where they were kind of trying to push the envelope regardless of taste. Yeah. And uh, I remember you saying they don't do that anymore. That's changed or something. Or... I haven't read. So maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember they announced her in an issue of Wizard and they, they named her Ecstasy. So ecstasy, basically. Ah, very clever. Uh, because that was her power set. And uh, I think probably... Uh, maybe some of the listeners will remember her from uh, a scene where she is pleasuring Bill Clinton. Um, and this happened. Yeah, this happened in uh, early 2002. And they had to change it at the last minute because she was originally going to be pleasuring Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> but uh, this is in the wake of 9 11. And he was, uh, you know, he was America's mayor at this point. So they, they replaced it with Bill Clinton. <laughs> Oh God! They were like, "Oh no, that would be tasteless, right? That would be tasteless to put that in the comic. Let's switch it to Bill Clinton. Okay, now we're very tasteful. What a crazy indeed! It was awful. What a business. Uh, we had Sky Bolt, who was the former Redneck, uh, Tempest, who was the former Angel, but not the Angel you're thinking of. Okay, this was, this was Angel Salvador, who uh, actually was impregnated by Beak, and uh, she had she had wings, but they were. They weren't angel wings. They were more like fly wings. It was pretty gross. Okay. And uh, so when her and Beak had kids, they had like dozens of fly babies. Oh, God. Pretty gross. Um, and we also had Wandra, who was the former Jubilee. And Night Thrasher's there, too. Kinda. Is he skateboarding? I think for some of it, it's actually Tony Stark under the mask. This wow. is post Civil War Marvel. So, I, heard, yeah. I heard this was new reader friendly, right? That was that was the main thing about. It. <laughs> Jeez, I mean, I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> Someone done lied to you. Yeah, good <laughs> God, you know, you, before before reading this comic, read everything ever published. Pretty much, uh, or just, uh, just wrote in the garbage. And then there was a, a very recent New Warriors Volume Five. This came out. Uh, <laughs> actually, I think this is. Uh, oh no, it already ended. Uh, Post Marvel Now came out. It was 12 issues, April 2014 to January 2015. 
Written by Chris Yost, art by Marcus Two or Toe. Oh. Awful volume, much of which uh, had to do with the high evolutionary. They teamed up with evolved pets named Patches and Mittens or something like that. So dumb. <laughs> and new members included Scarlet Spider, the Kane version, uh, Sun Girl, Nova, the Sam Alexander thing. I think Richard Ryder is a, a non-entity he was, now. I think he was dead at this point, yeah. Yeah, uh, Hummingbird, Kane sidekick, and Water Snake. So what... Uh, yeah, Water Snake. They thought that might be Namorita, but I don't think it was. It was convoluted and not very good. I, I, Water Snake's a character I've never even heard of. Is that a, a common Marvel character or? No, no, no. This was a. It was an Atlantean character with like a. Uh, she had like a long mohawk, um, and I think they they were alluding to the to the fact that it might be Namorita throughout the the uh, volume, but it turned out not to be. Well, it was like she's like Kyera or something like that. Who knows. <laughs> Uh, but uh, there's even more. We just recently, very, very recently, learned that there is a television show mm-hmm. that uh, seems like it's New War- New Warriors name with a whole other whole bunch of other Marvel characters underneath it. Yeah, yeah, a lot of uncommon characters. None of the people we've mentioned here are, are pretty much, or very few yeah. of them are on there. Yeah. And uh, we hear there's very little information, but it, as it is with the comic news blogosphere, everybody's reporting on it. Yep. And, uh, what we do know is that it's for Freeform Cable Network, the television app, which I think was used to be ABC Family. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if you look at it real quick, it looks like a they're, they're trying to do a Great Lakes Avengers type thing. Yeah, uh, it's it's a comedy show. I know that too. I didn't write that and, here, but it is some kind of comedy. And of course, Squirrel Girl is front and center. Of course. Um, and and like we said, not a lot of information. Except yeah. that. You, which you wouldn't know if you did a search for New Warriors right now. You'd think there was a ton of information, but there really is not a lot to say. They haven't even really gone into scripts or casting yet. Nope. Um, so I would say that would come out in 2018 at the earliest. And it wouldn't surprise me if Marvel had a New Warriors Volume 6, volume to, go, six. to go right along with it. You know, then <laughs> yep. it'll be probably all the characters that are in the show or whatever, but we'll see. Sometimes they don't uh, do that. So... That finishes up our basic talk about New Warriors, but of course we still have to wrap up our two creators' bios, and we have a little little discussion. We want to talk about the conditions surrounding the comics marketplace when this comic came out, and kind of what I think, and what you know, what, the, what we both feel is was the impetus for this yeah. creation of this comic. Uh, and we're going to get to that right after this break. Geek Room, we are here at Comic-Con 2015. We were with Fabian, the distinguished creator of Deadpool. You're going to have to try the last name. Oh, I'm going to look like a fool on camera by trying that. <laughs> All right, we were at Comic-Con 2015 with Fabian Nis- Nisetza. Try it again. Nisitza. Try it again. Nisitza. Nisiesa. Nisiesa. Fabian Nisiesa. It's not a one-hour segment. <laughs> Fabian Nisiesa, creator of Deadpool. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we are going to be talking about the creators of New Warriors, number one, uh, or the people behind it, not the creators of the New Warriors, but the creative team behind the comic. And uh, we'll start, as usual, with the writer, Fabian Nisiesa. After writing, uh, about writing New Warriors, Nisiesa recalled... I took the assignment for two reasons. First, I saw a lot of potential in these characters that had already been deemed useless. And secondly, I really wanted to write a monthly book. And as we talked about it, that was really his first shot. Uh, Nisiesa went on to write New Warriors for most of its 53 issues. uh, For, well, I guess it was, or for 53 initial issues, July 90 to November 1994. And years later, Nisiesa said he considers the first 25 issues of New Warriors to be the best work of his career. 
I disagree. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> in 1990, Nicieza also began short runs on such comics as Alpha Flight. He did 87 to 101. He did Avengers 317 to 325. And he did a little bit of Avengers Spotlight. Fabian also wrote the miniseries Nomad for issues in 1990, which in turn led him to write the ongoing series Nomad Volume 2, number 1 to 25, May 92 to May 94. So that's two number one issues in the same year. Mm-hmm. Look at that. Uh, in 1990, also, all the same year. This is a busy year for Fabian. Yes. Uh, he became editor of Marvel's children's imprint, Star Comics, which then dissolved within a year after that. Although I don't think it was his fault, I got to say. I, think, I doubt that. Yeah. I think the Star Comics, this is the one we were talking about with uh, Fraggle Rock and uh, Heath Cliff. Droids, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it had run its course. But uh, at that point, when uh, Star Comics dissolved, he left Marvel staff completely and moved totally to freelance writing. Yeah, he wrote the first four issues of the National Football League-approved superhero, NFL Super Pro, uh, from October 1991 to February 1992. Some uh, interesting stuff there. Yeah. Uh, he'd also write the four-issue miniseries Adventures of Captain America, which is also known as The Adventures of Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty. That was September 1991 to January 1992 with art by uh, JLI guy yeah. Kevin McGuire. And this was basically a retelling of the Golden Age origin story. Which, you know, we need to have every now and again. Of course. Well, you need to somehow leave him in World War II, but somehow advance the time that he comes out of the, the cryogenic gotcha. thing. Yeah. You know, yeah, <laughs> he didn't get melted recent. until 1986. Right, exactly. <laughs> Now in 1991 he got the uh, he got the Rob Liefeld lottery ticket. Isn't oh that yeah, what, that's what he that said. Yeah, he won the Rob Liefeld lottery. <laughs> yes, he joined with Rob Liefeld in co-plotting and writing the final three issues of the New Mutants, which is issues 98 through 100. In those issues, he co-created Deadpool, uh, which uh, was a Rob Liefeld creation. He might have mentioned a time or two. <laughs> so I think and, he said something. Yeah, <laughs> and Shatterstar, as well as putting together the mutant team X Force. Which leaped, leapt right out of uh, uh, New Mutants number 100 yep. because uh, Liefeld and Isiesa produced the ongoing X Force title, and that was uh, that launched in August 1991. Uh, initially, Nisiesa was scripter only, but after Rob left uh, Marvel, he drew to issue number nine, plotted to issue 12. Fabian became his full-time, you know, creative force, the writing, writing, plotting, scripting, and he remained there until 1995. And that, and I read uh, pretty much the end of New Mutants. I never read X Force, but well, people have a lot of good things to say about this run. Do you agree, or I mean, you know more about it than I would. Yeah, yeah. Nisiesa, he's he's one of my favorite writers of this era for sure. Him yeah. and Scott Lobdell are uh, are my you know X X Men guys. He seems to have a good a good. Uh, grasp even from this issue of like the nuts and bolts of the pacing of an issue, you know, and that's a huge certainly, thing. Certainly. Keep, keep it going, keep the quips. Not all the quips are so funny, but at least they're, they're quips nonetheless. And yeah. uh, keep them into, you know, with the action. Anyway, by the end of 1992, Nisieza became a regular scripter for X Men Volume 2, beginning with number 12. That was September 1992. Art handled mostly by Andy Kubert. In 1992, Nisiez also wrote the two-issue miniseries Cable, Blood and Metal, October through November of that year, penciled by John Romita Jr. He wrote Deadpool's first solo miniseries, Deadpool, The Circle Chase, in 1993, art by Joe Medjuara. Okay, very good. <laughs> Over the next three years, Fabian Nicieza was heavily in the X-Men mix while it went through some of the franchise's best-known crossovers and events. 
For example, Executioner's Song, 92 to 93, Phalanx Covenant, 94, and Age of Apocalypse, 95 to 96. In 1995, a dispute with then-editor-in-chief Bob Harris over the future direction of his plot lines on X-Force, Fabian was fired from the X-Men titles, which, wow. Uh, yeah. X-Force with number, was his last issue was X-Force number 43, February 95, and X-Men uh, last issue was number 45, October 95. Asked about it later, Fabian said, I never wanted to leave X-Force and never felt my firing was justified. I don't recall being given a reason for being fired, and I also don't recall asking for one. Considering it was a top 10 selling title at the time, I felt it was a wholly unjustified decision. And a I would lot have, of weird stuff there, yeah. I would have to agree. You know, I did a, I did a little looking around to see if I could find more details online, uh, and I really couldn't. I couldn't find a whole lot of people talking about it, but something, something funny happened here. I think Marvel editorial was just a really tumultuous place at that point. And uh, this was in the era where it felt as though the editors were writing the books and the yeah. writers were just there to facilitate. Um, and you never know. That might have just been might have just been a, a difference of opinion. Well, there, was, I, I, there was a certain name mentioned in there that I thought might tell a lot of the story. Bob Harris. I didn't. Bob I don't wanna, Harris. I don't want to. I don't want to cast too many aspersions. I don't want to point big, any fingers. But, but. It's, it's, it seems like whatever you hear, it's is like this. A lot of times, his name is in the mix somehow. That's all I'm saying. So very, very often. Yeah. And uh, it looks like Fabian's last issue of X Men was my last issue of X Men for a while too. Wow. Uh, I actually dropped it with this issue because uh, it was an anniversary issue, and we were in the midst of every, everything was an anniversary issue at this point. You could celebrate, you know, the first time that Wolverine popped his claw. You sure, could celebrate yeah. the first time he drank a beer. It's like, wow. let's let's not. And you know, we had X Men number forty five, which was a fantastic issue, uh, featuring uh, some of Gambit's backstory with Sabretooth, and. Uh, and I, I couldn't afford it when I was a kid. It was like a four dollar issue, which oh, is man. funny to think of now. Uh, when the book was originally a, like a buck fifty. So it's like again, oh, yeah. here's another. And if you're trying to collect the entire X Men line, you know, a a month where everything's an anniversary issue is it's big bucks for a kid. Absolutely. So it's uh, that's when I walked away for the first time. Um, wow. Now. After 1995, Nicias had a few short runs on comics, including Captain Marvel in 1995. This is the the Genesis Captain Marvel oh, wow, that okay. uh, the old that Marvel. came out. The old, yeah, okay. Yeah, the old Marvel's son. Uh, yeah. He was. Uh, they first know, had him known as Legacy when he showed up in uh, Marvel's version of Bloodlines, <laughs> the uh, Silver Surfer Annual. Wow. Um, also, he wrote Spider-Man: The Final Adventure in '95. That was part of the Clone Saga. And uh, he also wrote stories for the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Uh, he would leave Marvel in 1996, and he would do his first work for DC Comics. He co-wrote, along with Mark Wade, Justice League Midsummer Nightmare, which was a, uh, a short miniseries that relaunched the uh, the JLA series, mm -hmm. the uh, Morrison run. Uh, it put together, it put the Magnificent Seven back together, basically. Uh, Fabian also worked for Twist and Shout Comics, writing and penciling backup stories in X Files Special and uh, Number One and Dirtbag Number Seven. <laughs> oh, okay. He joined he joined Acclaim Comics, which uh, it, Acclaim Comics was publishing the Valiant superheroes at this point. Yep. 
and he was the senior vice president and editor-in-chief in 1996. Um, he was tasked with enlivening the acquired properties that used to comprise that valiant universe. Um, characters like Solar, uh, Exo Man of War, Ninjak. He called it VH2. Um, Nisiesa himself wrote the Torak title as well as a new series, Troublemakers. You ever read Troublemakers? No, I never read Troublemakers. It was about, like, kid superheroes. It was interesting. Um, it was, I remember it being... Uh, I remember it looking very nice. It was a very colorful book, very uh, cartoony. I wouldn't mind reading his run on Turok, actually, because I have read a lot of Turok comics, uh, but I can't claim Turok to know is, these. Turok is one that I'm sure I have, like, dozens dozens of issues, but I've never read a single one. Uh, it's all right. Uh, now, Turok was uh, it met with success as a video game adaptation. I think that was a Nintendo 64 game. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Nisiesa was promoted to president and publisher of Acclaimed Comics in 97, and during this period, he would also write a Torak novella. Wow, but Spanish soap opera. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> a lot of people were thrown downstairs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there was a guy with a mustache that was uh, behind everything. Mm-hmm. And an evil priest. <laughs> the, uh, but after deep staff cuts and most of the lines being canceled, Fabian left Acclaim in 1999, essentially because they were folding up shop, really. Uh, I was still following uh, Quantum and Woody at that point, and I remember you'd go months without a release. It, yeah, it got pretty rough. They 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 had a lot of trouble there keeping. Uh, I mean, the market was crazy right there for for everybody yeah. and for little guys like that, guys that in a way were new to comics. Also, this must have really been something else. But anyway, uh, sure. Fabian returned to freelance work, and he sees a co-wrote the Magneto Wars for Marvel. This was a crossover through Uncanny X-Men 366 to 367 and X-Men Volume 2 number 86 to 87 with artist Alan Davis. That was in 99. This yeah, led... Storm was supposed to die in that, but she did not. She didn't. Well, they just changed, <laughs> changed their mind? or Yeah, and they, yeah, cause I, I, they changed creative teams, actually, at this point. This is another Bob Harris deal. They were like, where, wait, uh, people like Storm a lot? We didn't know that. Oh, yeah, Steven, Steven Siegel and Joe Kelly were the creators on, on X-Men at this point, uh-huh. and uh, they got booted because they would not toe the editorial line. Um, the uh, the Magneto Wars pretty much served to to reveal the true uh, the true what what uh, Joseph is. Joseph is a character that was thought to be Magneto, yeah, uh, de-aged Magneto, and this kind of spilled the beans on all that. But this was was this the one that kind of humanized Magneto too, to some extent, or was that no? This is what this one ended with him threatening to put the to put the Earth's axis put put the Earth off its axis, and in order to you know, calm him down. They they made him the uh, the president of Genosha. Oh, all right. So there so, you go. Not not the kinder kinder nicer Magneto I was no. thinking of, but a popular mm-hmm. enough that he had successive Magneto limited series. Right, right after that, mm-hmm. there was Magneto Rex in 1999, Magneto Dark Seduction in 2000, and a Gambit ongoing series beginning in 1999. Uh, he wrote for the first 24 issues of his 25-issue run. Who wrote that last issue? Do you know offhand? It was Scott Lobdell. Wow. Because it was, a, it was running alongside a, a book called Bishop, The Last X-Men. Uh-huh. X-Men. And they were going to uh, they were going to mix the uh, the books together. It was going to be a Gambit and Bishop series. Uh, it turned out that I guess they realized that probably wasn't a very good idea. So uh, it turned into a uh, mini series called Gambit and Bishop. And I think they fought Strife, which is the cable clone. Okay. And uh, then then Strife like turned he turned good, and they like hung out at a diner for an issue, and then he died. 
Wolves have hung out at a diner for an issue. Those, those are the Why issues not? that we like to see. They are. Um, also, back in 1999, Nisieza began writing Thunderbolt with number 34, and he wrote that until number 75. Initially, that was also drawn by Mark Bagley. Yes. Fabian juggled work for bo- from both Marvel and DC at the turn of the 21st century. At Marvel, he wrote Citizen V in 2001, Citizen V and the V Battalion, Everlasting, 2002, X-Men Forever, 2001, uh, X-Force Volume 2, as well as the short-lived ongoing series Hawkeye in 2003. For DC, he wrote the six-issue miniseries Superman of America in 99, and the Elseworlds Project JLA created Equal in 2000, as well as some of the children's comic Justice League Adventures. Uh, He also co-created, along with artist Stefano Raphael, a horror miniseries titled The Blackburn Covenant that came out through Dark Horse Comics in 2003. He returned to Old Pals, uh, Cable and Deadpool, that same year. He wrote all 50 issues of their their team-up series. Mm -hmm. In uh, 2006, he wrote uh, for DC a three-issue arc in Action Comics, which was uh, 841 through 843, uh, July through September 2006, co-written with Kurt Busiek as a time killer, I believe, because it took so long for uh, the Jeff Johns and Richard Donner Last Son stuff to, oh, to work yeah. itself out. This is f- filled it in. Yeah, he had. To, they filled in the the off months. Nicias uh, also wrote JSA Classified number twenty eight in September two thousand seven. He was also one of the co writers for the ninety nine, uh, the ninety nine comic book created by Naif Al Butawa and published by Te- Teshkeel Comics, featured a team of superheroes with special abilities based on the ninety nine attributes of Allah in Islam. And I believe they had a team up with the JLA. Really? I think there was a JLA 99 comic, yeah. I can't pretend to know what the 99 attributes of Allah and Islam are, but... I, I haven't the foggiest, the, no. con- the concept sounds like something uh, vaguely interesting. I, I, it does. I'd like to know more about it. It does. Uh, he wrote a bunch of Batman-related stuff while Grant Morrison was having a field day with the property. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, in 2011, DC announced Nisiesa would be writing Legion Lost, which was a spinoff of Legion of Superheroes, as part of the line-wide New 52 relaunch initiative. And he, like many before him, wrote six issues before leaving. Yeah. Seemed like that was a thing then. Um, <laughs> he would write here and there for DC for over the next few years, including a handful of the uh, Convergence tie-ins. Um, for the comics company Shatner Singularity, he adapted a Stan Lee poem into the graphic novel Stan Lee's God Woke in 2016. This work won the 2017 Independent Publisher Book Awards Outstanding Books of the Year Independent Voice Award. Well, that's nice. Uh, mm-hmm. and, that's, and a mouthful. That's pretty much all what I know about him. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting for a guy that's pretty prolific. Uh, and he's done quite a few interviews, and I read through them, but he, he doesn't give a lot of personal information. I don't, I don't think he's that kind of a person. Uh, no. Some people, they can't stop talking about their first day yeah. walking to the, get a comic, and you know, they know the weather, they know everything, you know, they saw an ant <laughs> on the way. He, he doesn't have a lot of anecdotes like that, but he has no. done plenty of work, and you know, a, lot of, a lot of solid work. I definitely know a lot of that DC JLA work, especially the uh, Midsummer mm-hmm. Nights thing. Midsummer Nights, yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, on to the artist, Mark Bagley. We'll wrap him up. He would draw the first 25 issues of New Warriors, leaving to work on Amazing Spider-Man after Eric Larson's departed from Marvel, totally going to Image. His first issue was Amazing Spider-Man number 351. That was September 1991. And, you know, he's, he's regarded as a pretty well-known Spider-Man artist, I think. Yeah. Uh, Mark and David Michelini uh, introduced the character named Carnage in the Amazing 
Uh, Spider-Man number 361, that was April 1992, and Bagley produced the Venom Lethal Protector Limited series in 1993. He got mixed up in the Maximum Carnage and Clone Saga storylines, which ran through the Spider-Man titles, which, you know, we tried to pick that apart one time and almost went insane, so he was, yes. <laughs> a lot of people worked on those uh, that crossover, so he was one of them. In uh, 1997, Bagley col- collaborated with writer Kurt Busiek on The Thunderbolts. Uh, in 2000, Mark Bagley was assigned Ultimate Spider-Man with writer Brian Michael Bendis, and the pair were on the title for 111 consecutive issues. Yep. They beat out Stanley and Jack Kirby on Fantastic Four. I mean, that was a feat. Yep. Uh, Bagley collaborated with Bendis on The Pulse in 2004 to 2006, which was a continuation of the Max series, Alias, which we might know now as Jessica Jones or whatever. Yeah. Uh, drew a four-issue arc on Mighty Avengers, which was also written by Bendis in 2007. They're buddies now, I think. <laughs> I think so. And then the weird thing happened in 2008. He signed an exclusive three-year contract with DC. Yeah. That's odd. It really was. Um, it's just a strange little turn of events there. Yeah, and uh, his first assignment was uh, Trinity with Kurt Busiek. This was a uh, weekly series, uh, so there were 52 issues. It was a, you know, as, as you could, might guess, it's a Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman mm, team-up book. Yeah. Um, Mark Bagley drew some Batman issues written by Judd Winnick. Uh, he teamed up with James Robinson on Justice League of America beginning in 2009. He drew most issues from 38 to 53. This was uh, a lot of this was like the Blackest Night, uh, Brightest Day era. Uh-huh. Um, in 2011, he returned to Marvel uh, with Ultimate Spider-Man with Brian Bendis. He drew the Death of Spider-Man arc in issues uh, 156 through 160 because that that was one of those books, you know, because it is a Marvel book. It got relaunched with another number one. Of I think course. there were two number ones, <laughs> and then they uh, and then they brought it back to its legacy numbering so they could so they could end it. Um, and, and so thousands of collectors could end their lives. <laughs> yes, basically. Uh, now Mark and Brian teamed up on a creator-owned series in 2011 called Brilliant. Because that's what books were being called back then. Right. Superior, brilliant. I know, I know. Yeah, they're uh, all like one word exclamations. Yeah, invincible. That's like the, yeah. yeah, that's like the turn of the century when authority came out, and it's like, okay, well, this is agency. It's yeah. Like, oh, stop. Yeah. Now, that came out through Marvel's Icon imprint. Uh, while producing Brilliant, they also did Avengers Assemble, which was. Uh, which was the book that you would get if you went to see the Avengers film, basically. Um, nobody could agree whether or not it was in continuity. Uh, Bendis swears it was. Nobody can place it, though, wow. because it had the Hulk on the team, and Hulk was not on the team at that point. But either way, they, he also re- relaunched the Fantastic Four series in 2012 with Matt Fraction. That was part of Marvel now. Uh, Bagley and Mark Wade collaborated on the Indestructible Hulk in 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where Hulk had to wear armor, and I think he was like a, he was basically a side character for a Shield comic. Yeah, that's what that's it was that uh, Banner made the deal that he would get access to like Shield computers yeah. and stuff, if, and then when they as needed, long as he gave up Hulk, his title, that's what it was. Yeah, but and then they <laughs> get to use the Hulk when they needed somebody to go berserk and wreck things. He was a weapon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now he provided art for much of the recently ended second volume of all new X-Men. I think that was Dennis Hopeless who wrote that. Oh. And uh, personal life, Bagley and his wife Patty have a daughter named Angie. And that's nice. And uh, great artist, too. Um, Absolutely. If, you know, looking at the uh, New Warriors and then comparing it to the more recent stuff, that he's grown tremendously as an artist. He's coming to 
uh, you know, modern styles. And if you see his name attached to a book, I would say that's cause to run towards and not away from it. The other name might make you run away, but that's like, we, he can't help that. <laughs> we <laughs> can't help that. His, he can only help his name, so that's... And, uh, and you know it'll be on time. Oh, yeah, so you say he's a, he's a fast, he's one of these good artists like that. Uh, oh, that's, yeah. That's huge, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean... Because for the first few years of Ultimate Spider-Man, I think there was a year where they actually shipped 18 issues of it. Wow. Well, he's, and he, he never missed one. He did the weekly Trinity, right? He did that by himself. He did. Yep. I mean, yep. this guy's just cranking pages. It sounds like he might be underused as far as uh, I'm thinking <laughs> as a as a money-grubbing publishing mind myself. <laughs> um, but, you know, this this comic, New Warriors, this came out in a time of rampant comic book speculation that was really on the cusp of ending. It was, yeah, this might not have been its peak right here, but it was definitely around there. Um, mm-hmm. Although I want to, I want to say that you know when people talk about '90s comic speculation, the first thing that comes to mind is chromium gimmicks, whatever, and that's not yeah. that doesn't really speak to this particular comic. This this is a fairly earnest comic of stupid characters on a silly team, you know, young team. But you know, it's 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 a cash grab insofar as every comic ever produced is a cash grab. They all want yeah. your cash. It's not like they they have other. Motives, but it, 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 its existence and its creation, I think, owe to comic book speculation. So we want to talk just a little bit about that. We don't really have a full uh, direct market thing that we've been threatening now for uh, almost a year. <laughs> a long time. <laughs> it's 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 out there, but this this should this should give some context. So um, we're gonna get a little bit specific here. Comic collecting began in earnest in the early 1960s when fanzines and the first comic book conventions began. According to Phil Suling, who started the direct market in the 1970s, we'll talk more about him in just about a minute, the first comic book convention was held at a union hall on 14th Street in New York City and was attended by fewer than 50 people. Nice. Uh, but soon, but even they would start to have one every year and eventually move to hotels and eventually, you know, there were more multiple conventions per year and you see where we are now. Also, according to Phil Suling, nearly all comic book readers of the 1940s and 50s were create, were collectors in the sense that they hung on to comics to read them a few times, trade them from other comics, or lift the comics off the page with Silly Putty. The point being, you don't need to bag and, and board your box your comics in a long box to be considered a collector. You know, something about a comic as opposed to, say, a newspaper. A newspaper you throw away, the news is old. Yeah. A comic is something that you might hang on to and and i think more people than they think are have been comic collectors just because they didn't have a excel spreadsheet they don't think they're serious enough sure sure now in the early days of collecting uh which targeted mostly golden age books there were no runs to be had uh, without comic book continuity any issue in good condition had some value so like, you weren't going to be missing out on backstory necessarily right. and now uh, so many of these books had been lost to uh, World War II paper drives, uh, late 40s and 50s comic book burnings, and simply, you know, being thrown away, the uh, the ever-present mom threw my comics away thing. Exactly. I went to um, college, so I came back, I had no more comics. That's yes, happened. my room was empty. <laughs> yep. uh, also, comics existed under a standard periodical distribution deal to newsstands and magazine shops. Uh, basically, you know, you buy 100 copies of the Daily News, sell 20 on average, return 80. Uh, once in a while, a big headline will sell out an entire order. 
Uh, same deal with the comics. You know, give me 50 comics. Most owners did not care what comics they were. They might have had a few favorites. Right. They might have been like, you know, we want Superman, we want Batman, but just fill in the rest and with Fill in the rest, yeah, got. exactly. Yeah. They, almost undoubtedly, they said Superman, Batman, and Donald Duck or Uncle Scrooge, yeah. frankly, but that, those would have been the big boys. Sure, sure. And, uh, you know, many uh, many distributors didn't even give buyers an option. It was just like, you're taking these and sell them if you can. Um, so, you know, so finding consecutive issues of a comic shop, of a comic book was not always easy. So you'd go to the, you'd go to the racks one time and you'd see an issue of Green Lantern. You go back the next month and there's the same issue or no issue at no all. No issue so. at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I found it interesting too, that the distributors actually pushed back. They just didn't feel like dealing with it, like picking apart their bundles. You know what I mean? Like yeah. It was someone, just, it was just paper to them. They were like, whatever, you know? And they, yeah. like, there was a time going right around right now. We're talking about in the sixties that some uh, purveyors started to know that their customers wanted certain books, and mo- a lot of the distributors were like, "Well, they're tough. You know, I don't know what to tell you." Yeah, tough nuggies. Uh, they, enter, can to, they can go around the corner. Enter the guy we talked about before, Phil Suling, born in 1934. He likes to say uh, routinely that it was the same year the first comic book sold to the public, Famous Funnies Number One, by Eastern Color Printing. Uh, and he liked to point that out a lot. That was all reprints of comic strips at the time, though. Uh, he approached Carmine Infantino of DC Comics in the late 60s about establishing a dis- direct distribution model, and then Infantino laughed him right out of the office. <laughs> but a couple of years later, in 1972, his tune had changed, uh, also because DC was no longer selling the most comics anymore. They was Marvel hey. had overtaken them. So Carmine uh, called Phil and asked for elucidation. The idea was that Phil would buy comics from DC directly at a deep discount, but he would there would be no returns. To which uh, I believe uh, Infantino let out such a hearty yelp that it was heard around the world. He was so happy. Um, <laughs> Phil covered his risk at the time by taking pre-orders and money up front, which is an incredible business arrangement that could only happen in comics and collectibles. Can you imagine someone yeah. paying for like produce like two months in advance and being like, "All right, I hope you deliver it." You know, like that yep. would never happen anywhere else. Uh, Indeed, having no warehouse to speak of, the orders shipped directly from customers to D.C. Phil was just brokering the deal. He wasn't even—he was making the phone calls and keeping the ledger, you know, which is something. No overhead, yeah. But, I mean, it was like only—it couldn't happen in any other business like this. People would would have cut him out immediately. Uh, It worked so well for D.C. that Marvel followed suit the very next year, did the same thing, and Phil was able to make deals with Archie Warren— and he also distributed underground comics for for quite a little while. It was uh, the only place a lot of people could get them until the fuzz made things heavy for him. As he, as we know, the obscenity laws changed in the mid seventies. Yes. Now, as Phil's customer base grew, so did outlets for selling these non-returnable comics. Comic shops went from less than a dozen in the United States in 1970 to around 2,000 in 1980. And we ain't even started yet. (laughs) Now, comic collecting was still a niche hobby by enthusiasts for the medium in the 1980s. Enter a man named Chuck Rosansky. He drove some of the pricing. He drove up some of the pricing when he acquired the Mile High Collection in 1977. There's uh, 16,000 comic books from 1937 to 1955. He slowly released these to the market, and he would soon open Mile High Comics in Denver, Colorado, which... Still around today. Oh, yeah. And still at many of the big comic conventions, too, you see. Absolutely. At the last year's Phoenix Comic Con, those were the only comics there. Wow. Now, but comics were still mainly valued on condition and content. Of course, number one issues fetched a high price, but also so did first appearances and, you know, perhaps particular story arcs, particular Mm. plots. 
Um, now, within this closed comic book system of direct distribution, blah, 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 publishers <laughs> experimented with long-form crossover epics and adult graphic novels, which would have never been possible no. on the old model. Uh, we've got, you know, the 12-part epic Crisis on Infinite Earths by Marv, and Marv Wolfman and George Perez in 1985. We've got Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller in 1986. We also got Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons in 1987. Yeah. So not only, not only did they affect the tone of comics, they also affected you know, the way they're found and distributed. Um, over at Marvel, mainly, a new crop of artists were driving the fans wild. Some of our old favorites, Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, and Rob Liefeld. Yep, or Leefield, man. And, you know, the other names. Leefield, man. Uh, Eric Eric Larson and... Eric know, Larson, uh, Mark Sylvester. Sylvestri. Sylvestri. Yeah, something yeah. something was, on, was on the wind, and comics fervor was, was, was ramping up. But again, I want to be clear, it's still at this point, it's the content of the comics that are driving yeah. the, the, the purchasing, you know what I mean? It's, it's what was inside and not so much the idea of them. Now, now issues started to sell out, and this would drive up the demand for new comics. Over in the independent world, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, Teenage Mutant, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles debuting in 85, brought speculation to a fever pitch. The initial mm-hmm. run of about 5000 for issue number one was went for sale above cover price the day it was released. Which is, mm-hmm. whoa, although it was kind of a weird little newspapery thing. Sure. Around 1988, the Wall Street Journal published an article extolling the virtues of comic book and trading card collecting. And it really centered around low interest rates at the Federal Reserve. Uh, people don't mention that part, which made this kind of speculation <laughs> possible. How, but people didn't read that part. They read the part that said comics will make you rich and you can pay That's for it. college. Uh, mm-hmm. And this, in this article, it pointed out the formula for determining the value of a comic, whether it was a number one issue, the condition, whether it had to be mint condition, and the introduction of new characters. And just like this kind of roadmap and this belief that, you know, the comics could make you rich. This brought in a deluge of non-comic fan speculators hoping to find the next Action Comics number one. I don't mention it here, too. Also, it was arguably worse for trading cards. Uh, oh, yeah. Or definitely, they were in the same uh, boat right here. They were in comics. the same ether, yeah. <laughs> and, and it got, and I mean, if we were a different podcast, we could definitely talk about how that business exploded beyond any reasonable anything it was so ridiculous how many sports and other kind of trading cards there were at the time oh yeah um but the comics that were being published they tried to meet this demand by putting on more prestige format books and more embellished comics as in foil stamped and you know little gimmicks and whatever and they were there was a drive to have more number one issues and new characters to drive up the prices of little whatever comics and these are the conditions under which New Warriors number one was forged. But, you know, there's a lot to say about this topic, and, and we will. <laughs> but mm. to suffice to say for now that before too long, not long after the release era, the bubble popped. Mm. Um, just for a little bit of context, we got a few uh, number one issues published by Marvel at the same time, the same year as uh, New Warriors number one here. We had Black Knight. Fool Killer, Ghost Rider Volume 2, The Guardians of the Galaxy, Punisher Armory, the uh, Todd McFarlane adjectiveless Spider-Man, RoboCop, Marvel Superheroes Volume 2, Namor the Submariner, Nomad, Thanos Quest, and of course, the following year we have, you know, X-Force, X-Men, those were the oh, yeah. top-selling comics of all time for a little while there. Yeah, well the next year would be Jim Lee's X-Men number one, right, in 91, or is that 92? 
I, I think it was 91, and uh, but X-Force came out a couple of months before that, uh, which it, set the record, and then uh, X-Men smashed the record. So. Smashed the record, and it's never, never been outdone, but it's people have come close. I mean, it, it was truly unbelievable. You know, people were, and people were buying multiple copies also, uh, always at a time. Oh, yeah. They would claim one to read, you know, three to bag, but I think a lot of them were just four to bag, and then people were reading yeah. like they could care less. Because yeah, X Force did the, uh, they had different trading cards bagged in, so you'd have to, if you wanted all five trading cards, you needed five copies of the book. Like, could you see the card yeah. that was in it, or did it was the kind of yeah, blind yeah, you thing? Could see it. That would even be yeah, because you, because you, you, you wouldn't dare open the bag. Of course, no, never. You know, <laughs> the value just, you could just see money flying out of the bag as you open it. It's like a bag of chips or something. Is I think there was a, uh, there was an issue of. Either Ren and Stimpy or Beavis and Butthead that came polybagged, and uh, there was like a big block on the polybag that you couldn't see through. Uh-huh. And when you opened it and you pulled it out, that block was covering like one of the characters saying, "Ha ha, your your comic's worthless now." Oh boy! Because you opened the bag. So very funny. Well, luckily, yes. Ren and Stimpy comics aren't worth anything anyway. Um, I just want to early Dan Slotwork. I don't. I don't want. I don't want. I know. I, he, he always talks about <laughs> those early comics and uh, how Fabian Nicieza actually was his mentor. You know that. Yep. Um, I just want to do a partial list of the characters debuted in Marvel just in the year 1990, and I want to point out that then as now a year still only has 12 months, so it's a lot of stuff going on in just one little thing. We got. The Abominatrix and Sensational She-Hulk number 21, that was November. Agamemnon and the Incredible Hulk in December. Ahab and Fantastic Four Annual number 23. Blackout 2 and Ghost Rider Volume 2 number 2 in June. Bliss and Uncanny X-Men number 261, that was in May. Bloodlust in Marvel Comics Presents number 48 in April. Bloodwraith in Black Knight number 2, that was in July. And a name you might know, Cable in New Mutants number 87 in March. Mm, we got Captain Atlas and Quasar number nine in April. Cardiac, the uh, the the anti HMO <laughs> in uh, Amazing Spider-Man number three forty two in December. The third Deathlock in Deathlock number one July. Death Watch in Ghost Rider volume two number one May. The Ditto Master in Damage Control volume two number four. The third Fool Killer in Fool Killer volume one number one in October. We have Gambit and Uncanny. Gambit's first appearance is uh, Uncanny X Men number two, two four. Um, sorry, two sixty six. Oh yeah. But uh, his first uh, canonical appearance is uh, Uncanny X Men Annual number fourteen. Now, why is that? I don't remember. Um, I know <laughs> that. Uh, I know that Wizard they had really, a good really played with this. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think it was just, uh, you know, trying to raise the water so all boats would rise or something. Oh, but, uh, I think we talked about this. Yeah, it was basically they tried to to spike interest in a random comic that had him, like, eating a fish sticks or something like that. He was right? just in the background. Yeah, was, he was. Uh, and yeah. I think he even had a different costume. Like, I think it was just, like, a concept. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it was one of those that uh, it was a wizard helped. But... I mean, if they don't say or do anything, you know what I mean? I wouldn't call that an appearance, but okay, anyway. I, I get it's it. like you could start calling ads. It's like, hey, there was, a, there was an ad that showed Cable five months earlier. Exactly, so was that yeah. his first appearance? Now, now, we, now we can sell this comic for a third more. Yes. Uh, also, we were introduced to Ghost Rider, the second one, in Ghost Rider Volume 2, number one, in May. The Life Form, he showed up in Punisher Annual, number three. Midnight, Midnight's Fire in New Warriors, number two, came out the next month in August. Mind Blast in The Amazing Spider-Man, number 340, in October. Julius Rasitano in The Mighty Thor, Volume 1, number 426, in November. 
one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Mutant Liberation Front showed up in New Mutants number 86, February. Uh, all members appeared at the date mentioned, except where noted otherwise. We've got Dragonus showed up in New Mutants 93 in September. Forearm was in that first issue. Kamikaze was in New Mutants 93 in September. Uh, Reaper, Strobe, Strife, Tempo, Thumbelina, Wildside, and Zero were all in that other. All one. highly memorable characters, too. You know that? Well, it, Strife was. Uh, Strife <laughs> does come back a lot, but all, all these characters, it's like, I don't know. I feel like just sort of rattle them off, you know. Just uh, they they just took a bunch of crazy words, put them in a hat, and pulled them out to, to name some of these guys. Maybe I'm. Yeah. You got to figure a lot of these came name first. It's like, oh, that's a cool name. I think so. Too. That's guy. <laughs> Except yeah, for Thumbelina. Yeah, probably. Uh, there was also the uh, group Psionics in New Warriors number four in October. That was uh, Asylum, Coronary, Dwight Hubbard, Heidi P. Franklin, and Mathematic, which is an awesome name. I love that. Uh, silhouette first showed up in New Warriors number two, Stark and Guardians of the Galaxy uh, volume one number one in June, and Whiplash number the second one in Marvel Comic Presents number forty six in May. And incidentally, New Warriors number one sells on mycomicshop.com for two dollars and forty cents in fine condition. Or in a lot of bins, you can get it for less than a buck. I'm sure of it. I've, I, I think I actually have a few that I got for that price. I think I think Chris would say that if they try to charge you a buck. Punch him in the face. Punch him in the face. That's the rules. That, that's that's the Sheehan way of bargaining. It is. It is. And it always works out. So, um, but it's interesting just to see here. I mean, when if we if we were to look at 2015, 2016, how many new characters were introduced? Almost none. You know what I mean? Exactly. And, 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 that and weren't derivative. The, the answer to that often is, well, characters don't want to do it because they don't have profit sharing, yeah. uh, which is not – I don't think that's totally true. I think there's some truth to that. But I think that also, they're just so happy playing in the sandbox over and over, you know what I mean? And endlessly, yeah. the dream was to write Peter Parker, and that's it. They're, they're going to write Peter Parker, everything else be damned. Yeah. Uh, people would also point that, say, like other times in comics, well, in the 60s, Marvel had a ton of new characters. Yeah, well, they were building a brand new universe. So that was kind of had to happen every time. Every every issue was going to be someone new. But, I mean, here we have a list of all these new characters. and. I mean, how many of these are really like super memorable? I don't know. You know, how many of them weren't replaced by new, newer versions of themselves later on? Uh, so it really is kind of a uh, crazy people trying to grab, try, trying to jack the price, the cover price of comics. You know, nowadays often you go to the comic shop, you can get your comics at a little bit under the cover price. Then they were trying to. Jack you a little bit over, although. Oh yeah, because like like we were talking with uh you know like the turtles selling out and mm-hmm. and the indies with the low price so the low uh the low print runs selling out really quick. This is back in the day when the comic shop would charge you for a pull list. Yep, absolutely. So you know you'd yeah. pay a monthly or yearly uh, uh you know uh, amount of money to uh, for them to hold it for you. Yeah. And uh, where now it's like they offer you a discount. It's if true. You, it's if true. you decide they, to have like, the rule pull back. you, you know, please. And, yeah. and, and if you don't pick up your books, they'll be like, oh, we're, that's too bad. You know, they, they really, there really is no onus on people, whereas often you used to have to put down some information or put up money up front, like you said. Uh, well, at least now you can shame them on Twitter. It's, it's, so, it's totally different. You know, I think that a lot of the talks about gatekeeping uh, hmm. comics owners really are memories, hangovers of this time. Yeah, because they were the they were ruling the roost. They were making good money for one thing, and like you know, suddenly they had a bunch of people coming to the store saying, "What's a good comic to get for an investment?" And they were like, "Well, 
<laughs> let, me, let me jack yeah, everything and i'm only selling it at double the cover price this week so uh not to say that people like that don't exist now but i really think the stereotype we're looking at is like this this early 90s early you know mid 80s era of guys that are yeah. just really feeling feeling themselves and feeling the fact that they can sell you know uh the first appearance of of deathlock 3 for you know more than cover price <laughs> Because they they would run ads in in these uh, in the comics at this time where you could actually buy a comic book investment kit. Wow. Where they would send you you know five random issues, bags and boards, oh and uh, they and a little and a little you know photocopied magazine that the uh, that the seller put together to show you what to look for in comics, and it was called an investment kit. And uh, you see them advertised in these early '90s, late '80s books, and it's it's hilarious to consider what these what these poor souls might have gotten when I they know, ordered really. this. Really? Oh my goodness! I mean, they they got like somebody's like throwaway <laughs> comics dumped on them. Yeah, it's like you wait 12 weeks and then you get like Quasar number four. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I mean, I mean, truthfully speaking, you know, in the world of investment, in the world of collecting, new uh, a mint copy of New Warriors number one might be worth more in. But it might take you like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, you know what I mean? Action yeah. Comics number one sells for 2.2 million, but that's a 75-year-old comic. Yep. You know what I mean? And there's a reason for it. So, I, you know, I think people misunderstood the nature of this market. And I don't blame them because comics no. are a weird, weird market. They don't act they like indeed. anything else on earth. And someday we will tell you all about it. I, you know, we relish the opportunity. It's just tough to get that one going, folks. It's a big, big story to unravel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But we'd love to hear what you think about New Warriors or what you want to tell us about uh, comic speculation, maybe your experiences in the comic shops. Oh, we'd love to hear that. Today yeah. or back in the day or whatever, what what you see, what you're thinking. You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, and we've gotten some great uh, emails lately. We wanted to read a few for you right now. We do. Uh, this is from uh, Darren from uh, the the Ruth and Darren Network, the Warlord Word. I can never say that. It's, the it's, they kind of set folks. it up that way. It's a little bit, not that easy to say. I mean, my tongue's got half a twist in it at the best of times here. Uh, now, Darren says, hi, guys. The two of you are awesome. We already love your show, and we were just looking forward to hearing your discussion of the Longbow Hunters, but you overwhelmed us with your kind words. Your coverage was as terrific as we knew it could be. Your research is always excellent, and your summaries are fun. I really appreciate the depth that you get to into in your episodes. I also laughed at your comments about how Mike Grell's characters don't interact with the rest of the DC universe. Yeah. <laughs> We've heard him talk about that. He likes his characters to exist in the real world, and around the DC offices, they would joke about their titles existing in two worlds, the DC Universe and the Grillverse. Thank you both again for this, and it's been terrific to become friends through these exchanges. Keep up the good work, and we'll be listening. Well, thank you very, very much. Very nice letter. Yeah, very great, guys. Definitely check them Absolutely. out over at warlordworlds.com. They've got three great podcasts you should... Check them out if you get a chance. Certainly, certainly. I Next. think they just released uh, their their latest Xenozoic uh, Xenophiles episode as we speak. Oh yeah, all right. Well, they, you know they got plenty on their uh, feed, so absolutely, you can dig in and be satisfied for many hours. Uh, next one was from Matthew Downs. He wrote, "Hey guys, I really like I really like your Mike Grell coverage and mentioning the comic time scale. However, you didn't mention anything of Savage Dragon over an image where Eric Larson is doing a one to one real time with his comic." He is definitely the exception to the crazy time continuity rule with comics, and that is very true, uh, Matthew. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I, 
I had the I had my preliminary notes that had both Savage Dragon and Hellblazer in it for the uh, you know the one to one continuity yeah. the one to one time scale and I totally neglected to mention it during yeah. that episode. Both of us missed that. Sometimes it happens. You have something in your head and you don't you know you forgot to get it down there. Um, we were kind of we were, I was kind of more in the world of you know time inconsistencies, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, there, there, there's the rare time people are really sticklers. Uh, and even if it's not one-to-one, I, I couldn't, maybe could have talked more about the Jim Shooter era where he did keep a strict continuity between comics. Absolutely. That, that worked, even to ridiculous extents where, you know, sometimes Silver Surfer would have to be like, oh, quick, I got to run to the earth for a minute and I'll be right back. You know what I mean? Or whatever yep. it was. And then he, for but, his adventure, see Fantastic Four number 298. But they, but they, he would always make it work. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's funny how different people consider time in comic books but uh, thank you very much for that matthew and uh we appreciate the addition absolutely and if uh if you're interested in reading savage savage dragon now the current star of that is the original savage dragon's grown son because yeah, wow. it did it did advance in in real time it's, it's been um, 25 years now right or something like that it has yeah, been geez. it's it's this is the 25th year right now unbelievable uh, we also got a letter from Scott Finley. He says, "I just started listening to the Cosmic Treadmill podla- podcast, so I'm trying to I'm playing catch up. I've really enjoyed your and Reggie's perspectives since I seem to be from roughly the same generation. I listened to the Judas Contract episode last week when I was watching Teen Titans Go this weekend and caught the Operation Dude Rescue episode. I know that this show has a bit of controversy all its own, but it's pretty fun and my kids love it." The thing that stood out was when Terra said she is just evil and has evil hands, she rubs together all the time. Starfire says that they just thought her hands were cold. (laughs) (laughs) The funny thing is that the kids' show writers get things better than the comic writers who've been trying to redeem Terra by saying she was brainwashed by Deathstroke. Keep up the good work. Hope to manage to catch up soon. Uh, and yeah. that is one of my biggest bugbears in in all the Titans is uh, is Terry's uh, redemption arc, which never works for me. Yeah, uh, you can't redeem her. You know what I mean? She 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 did the wrong thing. It doesn't mean she could never appear and never do a good thing. But sure, trying to turn it around that she was actually always purely good, I think, is is it demeans the original story. It kills um, the story. Yeah. Now we now any listeners to the show know that. Uh, Chris is not allowed to watch any television or film adaptations by law, but by law, I yeah. will say that I've seen I've seen this Teen Titans Go plenty of times. It's a very funny show. It shares very little except for visually with Teen Titans, uh, mm. the comic or any other version. There was another Teen Titans cartoon before Go, by the way. That is closer, but anyway, that's, that's the high high puffy Yami Yumi one. No, no, no. There there was wasn't there one that was just more like it wasn't Bruce Tim, but it was like more of a standard cartoon. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm imagining. Uh, I don't know. I think there are two types of Teen Titans Go cartoon. Maybe I don't know. It's it's it's. I'm not as. I, I can watch them. Uh, I'm not legally restrained, but I can't claim to watch them that <laughs> often. But anyway, sure. but what I will say about that that cartoon and about a lot of these cartoons is that while they may not be similar to the comics and story or everything, they seem to capture the spirit a lot better. You know, and like. Then- Contemporary comics. Than contemporary huh? comics. And like the guys on Teen Titans Go, they act like a bunch of kids at, that like enjoy hanging out with each other, but they can also be, a, you know, bratty. They can also, you know what I mean? And like it's silly. Yeah. Like, and because it's a kid's show, they, the stakes are always very low. You know what I mean? 
Sure, uh, sure. I mean, it is literally for like seven to like ten year olds, so you can't expect it to be too much Trigon to be coming out. But uh, yeah. all I do know about that is they couldn't call Deathstroke Deathstroke because it's for kids, and instead, I think he was just known as Slade. Fine. No, you know what I mean. Which like, is fair enough. That's that's not that's not the worst change yeah. you'd have to make to a thing. No, I no. bet when they they put him in there, he was a devious. You know, Slade's character with bad the dude. Titans is very complicated though. He's a bad mm-hmm. guy. He's after them, but, but he's he also, also got a code. A, he's got a code. He's got a respect for a lot of them too. You know what I mean? And like, uh, he he doesn't underestimate them. You know, like a lot of, a lot of villains are like, I will wipe the map with you. Slade's always like. Do not underestimate, you know, Nightwing, dude. Mm-hmm. He will mess you up again. Uh, if you give him the chance, he will be on the good foot. But anyway, we really appreciate uh, that from you, Scott, and everyone that wrote this show. And you know, we're not going to be a read every email, but you know, if you have uh, something, especially a correction, we definitely want to want to give you Certainly. your uh, credit on here. And again, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at Cosmic T Mill History. On Twitter at Cosmic T Mill, that I don't think ever gets used. You can find <laughs> me personally at on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. And I'm at Ace Comics. And I tell you every week, go check out Chris's personal blog, which is on Chris is on InfiniteEarth.com. Which today, at the time of this recording, which is actually going to reveal how uh, late this, why this episode is late, <laughs> uh, you, re- you reviewed the new Batman Twenty One, a rare current issue review. Yes, uh, I don't do so that very often. It doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. And uh, so, if you want to, if you want to get on the latest cutting edge thoughts on uh, comics that you can currently buy in stores right now, that's the place to go. Chris is on mm-hmm. InfiniteEarth.com. Uh, I love it. Um, it seems like people, more and more people, are are getting to know this is a great place for DC Comics reviews, and I recommend it heartedly. Thank you. But I think that's all we got for him this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? No, I think that'll do us. Well, in that case, I want you to grab your skateboard and keep thrashing on the treadmill nightly. You-